0: Okay, are we ready to start? Great. Then let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with thanksgiving, acknowledging that you are God, you are sovereign, there's none like you, and thanking you for the privilege that it is to be yours in Christ. We thank you that you're not silent, you do speak, you do communicate, and so we ask for your wisdom to listen to you and Again, for your wisdom to respond, that you be glorified. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Nahum. We've seen so far: the uh, first point was that God speaks. Then we saw that God acts, and then today we're moving on to letter C in our outline and uh, taking a look at God's enemies. To do so, I want us to start in the book of Jeremiah. Let's go there, verse 17. Now, while you're turning there, I forgot I have an announcement for you. Uh, If you have, uh, um, the receipts for your giving this year are in the kitchen. So make sure you go through the kitchen today to get those, okay? Great. So in Jeremiah, chapter 17, look with me. I'll start with verse 5. There's three verses there I want to look at, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 31. So just by way of getting us all thinking in the same direction, hopefully, before we jump into Nahum, look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then verse 7. Blessed, so cursed in verse 5, now verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. So cursed and blessed. Uh, Interesting question, just very straightforward, that was asked in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It goes like this. If the way of blessing and cursing are so clear, why would anyone choose the path of sin? Any ideas? Why would we do that? we're sinful. Okay, we're sinful. Maybe pride lets us think we can just do what we want Okay, so the pride. Yeah, we're sinful, we're prideful. Our flesh is constantly fighting against the Holy Spirit. Our flesh constantly fighting against the Holy Spirit. I, you I, I appreciate your answers. You're, um, you're, you're uh, a little less tactful than I am when deal, with dealing with my sin. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good. But look at verse nine. We find the answer. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. And, you know, the King James and the New King James both say the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand? And, you know, I, I, it's just so easy for us to gloss over and not really think about this, but that word sick that, you know, that the King James and New King James translate as wicked, what it means, you look at the, the study of the word a little bit and you find that it's literally Incurable. I mean, we are... It's, it's so easy for us to ignore the blackness that is our flesh. Just how deep and dark and black and, 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 and just horrible. I mean, it's just... Who can understand? Yeah? I was just going to say that when you first asked the question, I think for Christians, sin is insanity. Hmm. It is. And it's, it's so dark, it's incurable. So now go to Jeremiah 31. I mean, this, is, this is a really bad situation. <laughs> and so look here in 31. Look, look at the remedy that God has for this. In verse 33... But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The remedy is <laughs> not found in, in the flesh that is desperately wicked, that is Desperately sick. The remedy is found with God alone. Do we we recognize just how black and how dark we are in the flesh? So with that, let's go to Nahum chapter 1. And let's look again. I know it seems like we're never getting past these verses, and it's because we haven't gotten past these verses. Let's start in verse 2. We're going to read verses 2 to 8 again. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers of Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved, and by his presence the the world and all the inhabitants in it Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) After all of that, bam, bam, bam. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its site, of Nineveh's site, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And that's interesting, you know, when we read what we did back in Jeremiah about how dark and just how evil and incurable we are. But we see here that God will pursue his enemy into darkness. Darkness. Now, with all of that, I want us to pay attention to the word found in verse 2 right at the end enemies. Enemies. We're going to spend some time this morning looking at the enemy of God. Now, what constitutes the enemy of God? Well, throughout history, you know, mankind has had no problem identifying our enemies. You know, we we understand what an enemy is, and we're quick to identify them throughout history. I don't think anybody in this room would disagree that this is an enemy, that Hitler was an enemy. And with that, we continue on. We have no problem agreeing, you know, those of us who can remember the Cold War, seems strange to say that, can remember the Cold War, No problem. Stalin is an enemy. And then we get a little closer to our time. No problem. Bin Laden is an enemy. But are we as quick to recognize probably the biggest enemy you and I have to face? Yep. (laughs) Ourselves. Do we really understand how black, how dark, how desperately sick we are in and of ourselves? Paul says it, well, there's nothing good in me. That is in my flesh. But we live like not everything is great about me. But he says, no, there's nothing And so really, I mean, again, the message of the prophet, just really uplifting. (laughs) You're black. You're filthy. You're incurable. You're an enemy of God. Remember the story of David, you know, the, the man after God's own heart. And... Being that man, finding out that that man is the man who also committed adultery, and then to fix that problem, committed murder. And then to think, there, it's handled. But remember, the prophet Nathan comes to him, tells him the story of the rich man and the poor man. Rich man had large herds. The poor man had one lamb. Treated the lamb like a pet. Would eat from the table. It was, I think the passage even says it was more like a daughter to him than a pet. And some of us pet owners can kind of understand that. And then what happens? The rich man has a visitor come, and instead of taking one of the multitude of, of, of sheep that he had, he takes the poor man's lamb and kills it and prepares it and feeds it to his guest. Nathan's telling David this story, and then you know how, the, how it goes. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Think, yeah, David, yeah. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Former teacher at His Hill, Doug Lanier, many of you know him. He had a little saying. Doug had a lot of little sayings, but there was one he said that just rings in my ear. He said, he would say this We always think our problem is our problem. But that's not our problem. We are our problem. And that's a problem. Nathan says to David, you're the problem. Do we Are we willing to see just how black and how dark and how desperately sick we are? So we find the word enemy in our passage here in verse 2, again in verse 8. In the previous line there in verse 2, we find the word adversary. It's a different word. In the original language, it's a different word too, but they're synonymous. So we see that God is repeating himself here. And we've said it before that repetition equals emphasis. So what's being emphasized here? We find that God is emphasizing that he has an enemy, and he's dealing with that enemy. The word enemy there, according to Strong's, is basically, our English word enemy is basically a direct translation. So what does our word mean in the English? Well, in the Cambridge Dictionary, the enemy means a person who hates or opposes another person and tries to harm them or stop them from doing something. So in the context of thinking about God's enemy, what does God's enemy try to stop God from doing? Any ideas? Okay, he tries to stop God from accomplishing His will. All right, I think even an maybe a, a simpler way of saying if, if, if there is a simpler way of saying that maybe it's this: God's enemy tries to stop God from being God. And how does he do that? By yielding to and being in league with Satan. Turn with me to a couple of passages. Go back to Isaiah chapter 14. Um, God has something to say to a couple of the kings. One to the king of Babylon, and then to the king of Tyre over in Ezekiel. So we're going to look at Isaiah, and then we're going to run over to Ezekiel. So chapter 14 of Isaiah, uh, we'll start in verse 3, and here we go. It reads like this. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. So he's talking to the nation that will be enslaved. And he says this in verse 4 that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how the fury has ceased. Look at verse 12. How you have, and he's talking to the king of Babylon, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You, have, uh, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Okay, so interesting here. He's talking to the king of Babylon, but it seems like he's talking to somebody else. So go to Ezekiel chapter 28, and we'll see the same thing happen here. Ezekiel 28. I'm going to start in verse 12. Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation. Over the king of Tyre, so he's, this is to the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Isn't that interesting? The king of Tyre was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he names all the stones. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub over, uh, who covers And I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until the unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were initially filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. These are interesting passages, aren't they? The first one addressed to the king of Babylon. The second one addressed to the king of Tyre. But as you read through the address to these two kings, who does it sound like God's talking to? Satan. These two passages deal immediately with the kings of Babylon and Tyre, but obviously they simultaneously, simultaneously describe the two rulers' source of their wickedness. And that would be Satan. Jesus addresses the same enemy. In Matthew 16, verse 23, when Peter says, Oh no, Jesus, you're not going to die and come back to life. Ah, no, that's not for you. So in other words, no, Jesus, not the gospel. And so Jesus looks at him, but he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, you are not so bad person. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Major Thomas gives some commentary to this. He said it like this It was Peter who had spoken, but the Lord Jesus Christ knew perfectly well that it was Satan who was behaving. Borrowing Peter's humanity as a means of expressing his malicious and subtle attempt to dissuade Christ from going to the cross. That's uncomfortable. He goes on and he says this, as godliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity and God's capacity to reproduce himself in you, so all ungodliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of Satan's activity and of his capacity to reproduce the devil in you. This is the mystery of iniquity. For iniquity is no more the consequence of your capacity to imitate the devil than godliness is the Consequence of your capacity to imitate God. These are uncomfortable thoughts. But what is it that, again, Paul says in Romans 7? I'll read it to you from 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20 of Romans 7 says this. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good dwells, that is in my flesh. Why is it that we are, as evangelicals, we're so quick to tell people there's nothing in you that can save yourself? But then, as Christians, we're so quick to say, what? Try harder. Colossians 2.6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So the way we live is the way we enter into this life. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it. But sin which dwells in me. The Amplified Bible puts it like this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot perform it. I have the intention and urge to do what is right, but no power to carry it out. For I fail to practice the good deeds I desire to do, but the evil deeds that I do not desire to do are what I am ever doing. Now, if... I do what I do not desire to do, it is no longer I doing it. It is not myself that acts, but the sin principle which dwells within me, fixed and operating in my soul. I mean, we are either giving ourselves by faith to Christ. To live his life in us, or we are giving ourselves by faith to Satan to live his life in us. It's worse than we think. Satan's desire, which is to take God's place, to stop God from being God, that he might be God, is exactly what he uses when he tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember the wording in, chap- in chapter 3 and verse 5? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Now remember, they were created in the image of God. So they were created to be like God, not to be God. But they were created in God's image. And we know in Genesis 2-7 that's by God putting his very life in them. So the way they live out the image of God is by God living his image out of them. So they were created to be like God, not to be God, but to live true to God. And so Satan comes along and he says, no, you're not going to die if you take of this fruit. Instead, you'll be like God. I appreciate, appreciate Charles Price's comment on this. He told us this back at the Thanksgiving conference this year. He says, the lie in the garden was not that you will be like God. That's not the lie. But that you will be like God without God. You don't need God for God. You can trust yourself to be like God. And this still is a problem that the Lord is dealing with. Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's dealing with the religious leadership. They're opposing Jesus. Now, we come down hard on them, and rightfully so, but in doing so, we need to understand that we better identify with them. You know, and we find out a little later that, uh, I mean, we always think there's there's just these horrible men. These are just, just so mean men. Well, one of them was Nicodemus. And then we find in the book of Acts that a whole lot of them came to Christ. I believe it's more accurate to say that these are men who really, really, really wanted to please God. And the way by which they went about it was to look and tr- look to and trust themselves. And they built a whole system around themselves that they could live by. And so what did Jesus tell these men who were really trying to be good? What did he say to them? You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This should make us feel uncomfortable. That's the message of the prophet. God's enemy is Satan. And in our book, we find that God's enemy is Satan and Nineveh. Nineveh was his, Satan's, willing vessel, which makes him an enemy of God. And now from these New Testament verses that we've just been looking at, we find that the same thing can be true of us as well. You and I can be the enemy of God. And it is a dark, black, desperate, incurable situation in and of ourselves. But how often will we run to that diseased source to be our hope in living out the image of God? Well, what's the destiny of God's enemy? Now that we've identified God's enemy, what is the destiny of God's enemy? Well, we've looked at this before. You know, in those those verses that we've read, from verses 2 to 8, we find that, you know, repetition being equal emphasis, we find that this is all about God. We'll find Him addressed as God, Lord, His, He, and Him... 24 times from verses 2 to 8. Think about that. So this is about him. So what's the destiny of the enemy of God? We must face him. The enemy of God must face and deal with God. Now in particular, how? what is it that the enemy of God must deal with? Well... His vengeance in verse 2. His wrath in verse 2, which there means possessor of wrath. There's a scary thought. Verse 3, his punishment. And 6, his indignation and his anger. And again, his wrath. And there it means heat or rage. Verse 8, God will bring Nineveh to a complete end. And then again in verse 8, the enemy of God must deal with God's pursuit. And look how it reads there again at the end, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. We've been talking about this darkness that is our flesh, this incurable disease that is us. And then we read this that he will pursue his enemy into the darkness what we have identified as being hopeless, God goes there. Isn't that incredible? The enemy will not stand against God. Look at Isaiah chapter 28. The context here is that Israel has been, uh, they're under the, 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 that constant pressure of being invaded by Assyria. And we see how they desi- decide to deal with that problem. In Isaiah 28, verse 14, it says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made a pact. So that's how, that's how the leadership of Israel wants to deal with the problem of Assyria. Uh, 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 that's how, yeah, how the leaders of Israel want to deal with Assyria. They've made a pact, a deal with Satan. The overwhelming scourge, this, this is how they respond to it. They said that the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for he... For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now, it's been pointed out that whether Isaiah thought of this cornerstone as being Messiah, or as just a a genuine belief in the Lord. It's not real clear from the immediate context, but we know other passages refer to the cornerstone as being Christ. So, with that thought, here we are. We have a nation that has put their faith in Satan to deal with the problem of Assyria. And the Lord responds with the cornerstone. That scripture goes on to teach as being Christ. And then look in verse 17. I will make justice the measure line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the, uh, the refuge of lies. And the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled. And your pact with Sheol Will not stand. This cornerstone will destroy what you are putting your faith in. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night, and it will be, look at this, sheer terror to understand what it means. The enemy will be destroyed. Satan will not stand, and those who are dependent upon him will find themselves in sheer terror. God will. God will not put up with his enemy, and he will destroy his enemy. And that's for our good. Yeah. Do you ever have that happen with your, with your mom or your dad? You know, you, you get a spanking and they say, hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> and then they say this, it's for your good. Satan will destroy, I mean, sorry, very sorry. God will destroy us. The cornerstone has been placed. And to what degree will he pursue this? Hebrews 2.14, description of Christ. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, And that is the devil. God will pursue his enemy into the darkness. And so we find that there is hope in God's sovereignty. In his rule. And so there is a reality for God's people in this battle. It's found again in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. There's three words I want us to look at in this verse. The first one, in looking at God's goodness, the first word I want us to look at is the word stronghold. And the word stronghold simply means a fortified place. Isn't it interesting that God is addressing the city of Nineveh. And we, in our introduction, we looked at this city. And we saw that this was the seat of power of this great empire that had ruled for an incredibly long time. And that God brings down in one night. This city was an incredible fortress. And the people thought they were safe. And God takes them out in one night. And when we read about it, as we go on into, into it, we see the devastation and how quickly it comes about. They thought they thought that they were safe, but it does not compare to the safety that God provides in Christ. And so look at a couple of, the, a couple of other passages. They use the same word, as stronghold, but look how they, they describe it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense. Same word. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 27, 1. And then Psalm thirty-seven thirty-nine. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. He is their stronghold. He is their fortress. And so the first word we see is stronghold. This is God's goodness. And the second word I want us to look at in this verse is the word knows. He knows those who take refuge in him. And that word there, it's a a participle indicating a continuing action. He always knows. And it suggests a a divine approval and a divine selection. It also brings with it the understanding of, of the idea of care. He knows. This is an affectionate knowledge. Psalm 1 verse 6 says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. He always knows, and there's an approval there, there's a caring there. To what extent does his knowledge of his people go? Well, listen to these words from Psalm 139. I'll start in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, into the darkness, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Again, where can I go from your spirit? He knows you. And so our next word, the third word, last word I want to see in this verse, is refuge. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And the word refuge, it means to flee for protection. And I just have this word of just running and just scrambling it. You can't get there quick enough. Flee for protection. Figuratively it's 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 a hope. And that hope is not a Gia hope it works out. It means certainty. It's a hope and a trust. And, and looking at that definition, it's really interesting when we look at Proverbs 3.5. The word trust there, it's a different word, but it means the same. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That word there, it's, it's interesting. When you look at the definition of the word refuge, and we see the word trust there in, in Proverbs 3.5, this is what it means to high for refuge are to what to hurry quickly to him for refuge and for hope there is nothing that we as believers in Christ can do that will undo what god has done with this darkness in christ because jesus says my sheep john 10:27 hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and i give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus protects those he knows. He is our stronghold. He is our refuge. There's been several people in my life that have demonstrated this in an incredible way and it was at the moment of death. My father-in-law, my brother-in-law, my mom, my dad, and then somebody that a lot of us know in this room maybe would remember some of us older people, Gary Spadafore. Now not one of these are an example of perfection in and of themselves. With my father-in-law and with my brother-in-law, I had some really intimate time with them just before they died. And they, you know, they were clear. You know, it was, they knew and they did not hide it, that they did not live a perfect life. That they often lived as though they were the enemy because they were the enemy of God. But finding themselves in that dark moment where knowing that death is imminent, any any moment now, there was such peace and encouragement and confidence and hope. and they could clearly talk about it. I remember my mom, just before she passed away, as we were rushing her to the hospital, and, and she, our eyes met, and she looked over at me, and she reached up, and she just touched me, and she smiled. It's okay. Got her to the hospital, and all she could do was try to find a way to tell every person that came in there about Jesus. And my mom was not a perfect mom. But there was a blackness in her that she battled with every day. My dad with Alzheimer's. (laughs) Mine completely gone. And you'd walk into that room, and sometimes you could just see the darkness, you could see the blackness, just the emptiness. But you start to sing a hymn and he starts to, he couldn't remember what happened 20 minutes ago, but he could remember the words and sing with you. Read scripture to him and look up and see that he's mouthing the words with you. When he passed away, I couldn't be there with him. I was teaching somewhere else. I was trying to get back. I couldn't. Charlie, being the good friend that he is, as soon as he found out, he took off to be with my dad. And he said, even though my dad was in the shape that he was in, Charlie said he couldn't describe it, but it was obvious that there was a peace, there was a connection there with what Charlie was talking and reading to him about. The darkness that God goes into for those that are his. And then Gary Spatafora in the front of the auditorium on a Third Sunday, potluck. Well, everybody is getting ready, and Gary's been diagnosed, and we all know that he'll die within days. And I went up to sit down with him, and he was by himself, so I said, Gary, how you doing? He looked at me and he says, Kelly, you know what? I've shared this with you before, I know, but he said this, you know what? If God heals me, I think I'll be disappointed. And we knew Gary, he wasn't perfect. But he had a hope. And he ran to it. Now, can you imagine in the darkness of our flesh, can you imagine not having a place to flee to? We are dark. We are black. We, in and of ourselves, are incurable. But we have a hope. We have Jesus. So let's flee. Any thoughts?